0: What's up, everybody? Thanks for stopping by the show. If this is your first time listening, welcome. If you're returning, welcome back. It's good to have you with us today. Ah, today, today, today. It is Tuesday, and the FDA uh, just ruled that vaccines for the 5 to 11-year-olds are safe and effective. I listened to the whole thing uh, this morning while I was working. <laughs> Jesus. Um, anyways, our guest today <laughs> is Georgiana Mannion. And uh, she's from Australia. Well, she lives in Australia. She's from the UK. She's got an accent. Uh, and she's also got a, a pretty, pretty, uh, oh. So her story was was it wasn't hard to listen to but i mean trigger warning uh sexual abuse um you know family sexual abuse and uh some some other stuff too uh so yeah it was uh i'd shed a few tears during this one so just uh you know if you got to um you know use some self-care pause it you know if you're being triggered pause it you, you walk away uh, turn it off you know, there's no, no, no harm in that. I I definitely will understand. Um, so yeah, this is a live stream and and what I was doing, I started live streaming stuff and then putting it over here, taking the audio and putting it over here to the podcast. And it's been a while since I I've done any of that. So if, if you're new and you didn't know that, that I did that, you'll hear me interacting with the, uh, the audience. So basically people in the comment section from Facebook and, and YouTube. And so that's what you'll, you'll hear me referencing or, you know, saying, Hey, you know, shouting them out or whatever. Um, so that's what that's about. Uh, let's see what else. Um, you know, I had a seven minute one before this that I did. Ah, and and I was like on fire I was talking about stuff. I wasn't stuttering. It didn't sound like I was stoned or anything. And, uh, I didn't check the thing before. Um, and it just had a horrible sound to it. It didn't go through my, uh, it didn't go through my microphone, and it sounded horrible. I was almost gonna do it, man. I was almost gonna give it to you guys and say, "Fuck it, man." I just, I'm just gonna put that on there, anyways. Man. They'll, they'll understand. And uh, but it was, it was so bad that I was like, "No, nah, I can't do that to you guys." So I'm redoing one. Uh, what I was talking about in the first one, though, is, um, you know, I had, I was covering, you know, if you listen to my last episode, you'll see that I, I was covered a. Uh, freedom rally over in Concord, California and talk to some folks and you know i don't know man um stuff is is kind of crazy um uh, just every the, the whole the whole situation of like societally where we're at you know what what's going on like mandates and and all these things it's uh it's it's really really concerning um Stuff that's happening in in Australia, that's very concerning. I mean, they're little. They're on a, a a curfew there, a nine p.m. curfew, and if that isn't bad enough, they have to download an app and connect it to their phone and their location. And at nine p.m., if you get a ring, you got five minutes. You got five minutes to respond back with, I think, a selfie and with your location on uh, and text it back to them. You get three strikes and you're out. And out means, I don't know, um, maybe something like a re-education center (laughs) or maybe a, I don't know, FEMA camp-like situation uh i don't know man but that's like being that's like that's like being on on house arrest i mean come on i just i don't get it man i I just don't understand how that's even possible anywhere um but i mean we're seeing it we're seeing crackdowns all over the place man and everybody seems to be waiting for, you know, hey, what's what's the United States going to do? Everybody seems to be waiting for what we're going to do, um, you know, because we're the last ones that are fully armed, uh, you know. Australia, well, there's a – when people say that Australia gave up their guns, they did, they did. But there are some guns there. For people that live in, like, the bush, I guess um, that's what they call it, or live, you know, on farmland or on land, you – can have a single bolt action rifle for you know uh, vermin and vermin whatever however you say that um, you know uh, rodents and and critters and stuff. So they're not completely disarmed, but I mean it's going to be hard to fight a battle with some bolt action rifles. Ch-ch-ch- boom! Ch-ch-ch-ch- boom! Yeah, it's you, know, you better be a good shot. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I just, I never expected to be there. And so anyways, I went to this rally and it was, it was pretty cool, man. It was, it was good to meet up with like-minded folks and, um, you know, get to hear different perspectives from people. I went and, and you know what they're doing in my area is doing meetups every week and patronizing a, uh, a restaurant or a, a business that, is not requiring mandates or making people show their vaccine cards or, you know, mask up and and all that stuff. Um, you know, on the outside, it looks like they got all the signage and everything else, but and I'm not going to say where it is because I don't want to like have the health department go down there and ruin everybody's good time. But yeah, I mean, we're spending our money at places like that instead of spending it at places that are, you know, for authoritarianism, basically, is what I what I call it. You know, you're you're buying into the system of of this, and most of those places that buy into those systems are corporate corporate places, anyways. And so we we really need to start breaking away from corporate spending. Um, you know, spending money on these on these uh, these corporations and these businesses that you know are are a part of part of the problem. So anyways, this is a good episode. I, like I said, if, if you're triggered at all about, you know, sexual, um, abuse or you've been through something like that, uh, just take it easy on this one. And what else? I think that's it. And I made seven minutes again. Here we go. <laughs> all right, man. Uh, it's enough of me. Um, Oh, now one more thing. Sorry about that. Uh, reach out if you got anything to say, man. If you uh, you know if you're a fan or, or, or if you you know got some ideas you want to uh, see if I can get a guest on the show or somebody that you want to see on the show, feel free to reach out in an email. Um, tell me if you like the show. Tell me if you don't like the show. Uh, whatever it is, man. I just want to. I, I, I know you're out there. And uh, I'd like to get to know know some of you. That's about it. So nowhere to go but up now at gmail.com. So let's get to the show.
1: Sean Dustin spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. Upon release in 2006, he had nothing but the clothes on his back, a bag of mail and legal paperwork in 2010 he kicked a longtime methamphetamine habit and started the long climb back up the ladder of life this is the nowhere to go but up podcast if you want transparency and authenticity you're in the right place this is the nowhere to go but up podcast and this is sean dustin
0: This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and I'm your host, Sean Dustin. This is your first time listening or watching. Welcome. If you're returning, welcome back. It's good to have you with us. Uh, We got a great guest for you today, an international guest for you, actually. Um, She's either from, I can't remember where where she's either new zealand or australia that's my bad uh she'll tell us though who she gets here but she's definitely from down under and has that great uh accent love listening to uh to that accent, um, so yeah. If you are watching on YouTube, do me a favor, hit that subscribe button and thumbs the video up. If you are on Facebook, uh, like and share this. You know the algorithm doesn't like to to push content unless you're paying them to uh, actually do it for you. So I definitely depend on the listeners to share these things so I can get some visibility out there. I would definitely appreciate it. Um, also, uh, this is yeah. I think that's about it. I don't have a whole lot. Um, all of the links, the direct links you can find in the description of the show and or the show notes if you're l- listening on the podcast platforms when this does reach there. And that'll be a couple of weeks. My queue is actually getting a little bit longer now. So let's get to the guest, Georgiana Mannion. And she is going to share her story of nowhere to go but up. Um, through some mental health issues, some trauma, uh, childhood trauma, and, and all of that kind of stuff that has helped shape who she is and, and to where she's gone. So let's welcome Georgiana.
2: Hello. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. And um, what an intro as well to a podcast, your um, like intro music, etc. I felt like rocking out. But I didn't want to mess my hair up for the podcast.
0: Right, right, and you are a musician too, and you have a mu- uh, your podcast is is uh, revolves around uh, music as well and artists and and all of that stuff. So, <laughs> um, what are you in Australia? Or are you in New Zealand?
2: So I'm in Australia, but I'm from England. Okay. So okay. I've been in Australia for over six years now, um, but I'm hoping that I don't get the Australian accent. I'm trying to keep my English one.
0: Yeah, well, that's, I mean, all of them that are different. I love, I love all the accents. Um, I, I feel so basic with my American, uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> but there's so many American accents. It's very exciting for a foreigner like me to listen to all the different American, so East Coast, West Coast, Middle America, and then people like who are from Minnesota who just sound adorable. And then, you know, it's just uh, I I really enjoy listening to the German accents of America. It's a large place. So uh, there's a lot going on over there.
0: There definitely is. And you are right about that. There are a lot of different dialects and different uh, accents in, in this country. So why don't we uh, start with, you know, who who are you? Um, what do you do? And uh, your story, you know, what happened and a little bit of, you know, what you want to uh, share with us, what you're comfortable
2: sharing. So who I am now? Yes, I am a keynote speaker at international conferences, so I've spoken in three three different countries now at business conferences, Um, and that's my jam, but I'm also a management consultant, but I'm an Uh, doing that on my own I'm an entrepreneur so I am running my own consultancy in training facilitation I do corporate coaching and mentoring um, and then I also um, just generally am a problem solver for hire so when a company is going through any transition um, I can come in and manage that from a um, analysis um, through to actually doing people change and I support people through people change so um that's what i do um but i also i have my podcast as you mentioned one um the main one is flawless amp or a music podcast and that is a deep dive into a particular album that one guest one guest or the host nominates and then we um talk about it for a between 45 and 55 minutes and then at the end we vote whether we believe it is flawless or not and we've been doing that for over three years and we've had we're on episode 85 and in that time we've only had eight Uh, flawless albums so we are quite robust in our um, deep dive of our flawless records and they have to be flawless for everyone they can't just be flawless um, to one person or two people so it has to be unanimous and of those eight albums um, three of them were uh, guests uh one of them was one of my co-hosts and four of them were mine so i'm the winner at the moment um, amongst my co-hosts and they <laughs> i don't let them forget it <laughs> so yes so i'm doing that and i've been a punk rock musician a folk musician um an indie rock musician i play guitar i um, play bass and i sing so uh i've been an uh, lots of bands one of them was signed in the records to a record label back in the uk and we used to go on tour and do it all in the punk DIy way where we crash on people's floors <laughs> and uh just like tour and stuff and like um get get drunk pass out wake up in the morning drive to a new city and do that on repeat so um yeah it was just really awesome so uh yeah i was really i was really uh, lucky to be in a band that people wanted to listen to and we even had vinyl pressed by a record label so i have genuine vinyl records of my album um, and i've got a couple of copies in australia so um that's yeah, it's awesome. It's cool. Things are definitely look, definitely look up in my life um, as I've gotten older. It's definitely improved. So,
0: yeah, that's that's great. Um, vinyl, what is that? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah and it's what the hipsters use so hipsters use vinyl so uh, yeah so i have a vinyl record collection um but the first thing i did was buy up like half of the billy joel back catalogue because like that reminded me of my childhood like just like lots of billy joel um but then i've got load of punk rock i've got musicals and orchestral music and jazz and like pop stuff and just like a like a bit of hip-hop and I just I've got a nice collection of vinyl records um, which I love and I love the process of taking a record out of its sleeve and putting it on the deck and then um, pressing play and then hearing that little crackle at the very beginning of the record and then at the end when it crackles at the end of the side a and then uh, it you can hear the arm lifting and moving back and clunking down. And it's just, there's something really beautiful about that, like, analog sound that you just, uh, that you don't get with other media formats. And I still, like, listen to streaming services Mophie, but there's something really beautiful about, um, yeah, about going through a vinyl playlist and stuff. It's just, yeah, it's really gorgeous.
0: Yeah, Jordan Jordan Barnes here says, I love vinyl. Have about twenty thousand of them. Wife cut me off.
2: <laughs> oh man. Get a new wife. No, I'm joking. Um don't do that. That's that that's really bad advice. Uh but yeah, uh, like have like I don't have twenty K. Uh I definitely only have like a few um shelves worth but um, I still love it when I grew up um, my parents were both musicians so we had an entire wall of vinyl records and we had um, a section of the wall with cassettes and then when cds came out we had a whole section of the wall just dedicated to cds and the rest of the walls were all dedicated to books so I was really like from that perspective I was a Um, exposed to a huge amount of different music growing up um, and uh, that was formed my musical taste now um, for sure which is yeah which is really good but they're professional musicians um, and neither of them would teach me how to play their instruments because in their words they, um, they would never teach an amateur So because I was a kid um, and, like, I didn't know, then they would never teach me how to play because they were so professional, like, they couldn't lower themselves to teaching their own child how to play their instruments. So I had to teach myself the guitar and I taught myself the violin. Um, And, yeah, but I, I, I didn't know how to tune a violin, so I tuned it like a guitar. And if you know anything, it's that violins are not tuned in the same tuning as a guitar. (laughs) And I was playing by ear. So uh, because I was playing by ear to music that I was listening to with strings, I would teach myself how to play the violin part to a particular song. And then um, I think my mother took the violin from me one day and she said that's not how it's tuned. So she tuned it properly, but I was like, well, I learned by ear and muscle memory so now I can't play anything because uh, I've forgotten how to um, do anything because uh, she tuned it so I had to tune it back to a guitar and learn it that way so yeah it was a, a, she she judged me for my violin playing but never actually taught me to play <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, you know, I wish that I had learned how to play a uh, an instrument. I mean, I still can. It's never too late to to take up one and, and learn it. But the guitar always seemed like the one that I'd want to do, just because I love rock music, classic rock, uh, and all of that stuff. You know, uh, alternative. Uh, Rock um incubus, and all of those nineties those nineties bands like uh, nirvana and and all of that good
2: stuff man um. uh, well I, I just to upset you i I can play Nirvana and I can play incubus on the guitar so but my my main thing was playing Deftones. so i dropped dropped the and used to play a lot of Deftones because um, they were my favorite band when I was like a young teenager. Um, but, yeah, I learned, obviously learned how to play Nirvana because that's, like, a rite of passage when you learn to play the guitar. Um, but I learned to play some Incubus as well because I saw them live a couple of times, and so I was, like, obsessed with them.
0: Mm-hmm, my favorite. So,
2: um, so yeah. we can bond. Nicholas, Sean, we're bonding. Yeah, we're
0: bonding over some Incubus. My favorite song is Drive.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a song I can definitely play. Oh, there I you go. That. Maybe one... I sing, maybe I sing it pretty good. Okay. So I'll play it and you can sing it and then we'll do it together on Clubhouse.
0: Oh no, you got me on the spot here. Um, yeah. Maybe we, we have to rehearse it though. Cause I don't want to just come in, uh, you know, cause you're a little scared here. Um, okay. But so the- let's uh, not, not to get off of that, but let's, let's, uh, let's dive into a little bit of your past because you were homeless at one point. You got some, some trauma is in, know, in your, in your, in your background as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. when you're like in as 15, um, at least that's what you put in the description. So, um, let's.
2: So, yeah, so I guess this is, um, like where people are sometimes really quite surprised um, because I'm so cheerful and everything now and everything's like so breezy for me now. Um, When I was growing up, I had uh, an incredibly abusive father um, and a neglectful mother. So um, my father's abuse was constant. He... um, silly assaulted me and I don't even know when it started or when it ended it was it's just a blur I just know and I don't even have the real memories to back it up which is good like I compartmentalize them but I do still have the emotional um uh feelings that come up when I get PTSD flashbacks so if ever I have to um go in for um like a cervical smear test, like a pap smear test, um, I absolutely, I have two weeks of anxiety and then the actual test will hum, um And because it's invasive, um, I then have PTSD, emotional flashbacks for two weeks. So just one test can put me back an entire month of my life. And I'm numb and I don't know how I can't feel I don't know how to I'm less loving with my partner I can't be intimate with my partner um, because I don't feel like my body is my own for a period of time because I have this PTSD which is haunting me and at the moment I have cervical cancer again so I've already had surgery once I have cervical cancer again and they've also discovered that I have fibroids a thickening of the uterine walls and I have complex ovarian cysts in both of my ovaries. So that's even more invasive um, uh, tests that they have to do. Um, but I'm in the mindset of, um, I, because each, that's three different tests that they have to do at any one time and they want to keep monitoring me until it gets worse. And I'm in the mindset now of um, feeling more empowered to say, no, you either remove the organs because I'm infertile anyway, so they can't throw the, you know, childbearing age thing at me. I'm infertile anyway because of all these things. Um, and my partner's had a vasectomy, like we're not having kids. Um, yeah. And I... I just need them to either remove those organs so that I never have to have another test or I need them to leave me alone for three years. I've just picked three years out of the thin air and said, if it's, um, if it's not so bad that you think you can leave me for three years, then do it. If, it, if it's, you think it's going to be bad enough that you can't leave me for three years, just take it out. And I've got the support of my psychiatrist, my psychologist and my GP to all back me up and say my PTSD is too bad. It's too destructive. Like the amount of diazepam I have to take is unreal. So my anxiety levels are so high that I I can take 12, 12, between 12 and 20 tablets of valium in a day and it won't even hit the sides of my anxiety and it doesn't make me sleepy or anything so it's like it's really severe so the trauma growing up was not only inflicted on me but inflicted on my half brothers so it was his stepchildren and also my mother so i used to hear him assaulting my mother in the night um And then she would work late and night shifts as a nurse, and he didn't work. So when she wasn't at home, he would assault me. So she had no idea that he was assaulting me, and I didn't want to say anything. Um, I was so ashamed, and I was like living in fear, and, and I never said anything to her because i knew that she was going through it too but it's just like he took turns depending on who was available um in the house at any one time and he was physically abusive as well so he used to beat the shit out of me um and i would have to just wear baggy clothes to school to hide bruises and he would beat the shit out of my mother and he nearly killed her a couple of times um one time he was strangling her with her own um, dressing gown cord and he was strangling her so much I thought she was going to die. And I was, I was probably about seven years old. and It was all because she bought a bottle of gin that she wanted to save for Christmas and he'd come home drunk because he was an alcoholic and a drug addict and a drug dealer and he'd come home drunk, and he was desperate to know where the gin was, and she wouldn't tell him. She'd hidden it in one of the garden sheds, and um, she wouldn't tell him, and she wouldn't. She was just holding on to that for dear life, and he was killing her. And I called the police. Um, I was, you know, like seven years old. I called the police, and they showed up. But my mother was so ashamed because she was brought up in that way of, you know, you don't. You don't show your weaknesses or anything. And my father was just so charming to everyone. Like he was an absolute narcissist and he was completely charming. Um, So when the police showed up, the police told me off for calling them. And the police said that sometimes mummies and daddies have fights, but that doesn't mean you call the police um, and you don't waste police time. And I was just like, I. that meant I couldn't trust authority from a very early age because they couldn't save me. And then I would go to school In I would like run away in the middle of the night. And I had older, um, I had an older best friend and he was like six years older than me that I met when I was like 13. And so he was like 19 years old and he, um, would, he lived about a mile and a half away and I would run in the middle of the night if I was being beaten up or like, I was scared that my father was coming into my bedroom. I would um, just like grab my keys and I would just run um, and I would show up at the end of this guy's street and I'd just put this 10 pence coin into a, you know, like a proper phone, old school phone book. Um, and I would call him and say, Are you at home? Can I come in? And he's, he was always like, Of course, you never have to call. You can just come in anytime. So um, I would rock up, and he was awesome because he would like put the kettle on and make me a cup of tea to calm me down. And then he'd get a bottle of vodka out, and then he'd pour me a drink. And um, then I'd crash there on the sofa that night. And he would get to lend me clothes to wear to school because I left with in the middle of the night with nothing. So um, he would lend me like baggy, if you remember like criminal damage jeans, you know, like real baggy like jeans and stuff in black. And he'd lend me like a like just a white shirt and I got up at school and they're like, George, you can't wear that, that's not uniform. And I said I had to leave in the middle of the night and crash at a friend's place. And this was the only clove I could have. And my school never did anything. So my teachers knew that shit was fucked up at home. But they never called social services. They never did anything. Um, So they, they, adults I couldn't trust either because they didn't want to get their hands dirty in business. And because I was so cheerful and friendly and friends with everyone at school and I I always got A's and all of my tests and everything else, I guess they kind of just thought, well, she's coping. And they left me alone. So there was like, and I was part of a theatre company too. And they, my father would show up at a play and he would... um, Sit there for maybe the 10 minutes of the play or, you know, musical or whatever, because I was an actress. And he would stay there for the first 10 minutes and then he'd go into the bar and then he'd sit there and drink for the rest of the play. And then he would walk through the doors during the applause at the finale. Um, having not actually seen play, and then he would go drunkenly in front of everyone at the cast party afterwards. He would drunkenly start shouting about how incredible his daughter was. She got it all from me, and she's so talented because of me, and that's why she's such a great singer and everything like that. And so he would just do that in front of everyone and embarrass the shit out of me. But they all saw him as just being a real doting father. And then we'd walk home together and he'd just beat the shit out of me um, for no reason, just like because he felt like it. So one moment he's singing my praises as like the most glorious child in the world in front of everyone to make him look good. And then he would just walk me home. And I remember there's one stripper's long hedges, Um, that we had to walk past and he would like pin me down in a hedge and just like beat me up and just because that's how he felt and he was uh, he had paranoid schizophrenia because of um, drug and alcohol abuse so he used to smoke a lot of weed um, and he had acid flashbacks from the 60s Um, and so he would like Just have these flashbacks where he'd run around the house, like, what, like, like, threatening us all because he was convinced that we were going to poison him or something, or he would just have these real delusions. Um, And then he'd go and pass out somewhere. Um, And then, so schizophrenia was all over the place. And he would abuse me one night and the next day he 'd buy me really expensive oil equipment for my because I was obsessed with music and he'd buy me some of the expensive speakers and it was like do you, is this an apology or do I accept these and I it was just a really conflicting thing for me as a kid to say like um, he would like give me this expensive equipment or buy me CDs and stuff um, but it was after he'd Assaulted me, or he'd done something like that, that, beaten the crap out of me the night before, and it was like a really weird thing. I, I never knew whether it was coming or going, um, but I guess like one thing that I learned from him was I instinctively learned how to um, read a person's face in a second, a millisecond. I had to be able to read a face because I needed to know if somebody was going, if he was going to blow up or if he was going to hug me. And I could sometimes tell by the way he put the key in the lock in our house. And as he turned that key, I could tell you if I was about to get a beam, I should lock my bedroom door or if he was going to come with a gift And it was just um, that experience, as horrific as it was, has actually made me an incredibly good management consultant because I can be in a board meeting and I can tell if somebody's unhappy or I can be um, giving a keynote speech to 300 people and I can tell if somebody's engaged or not at 300 people because I'm just running my anxiety test like. Like doing a millisecond at a time to all the people in the room, scanning the room constantly, and like I'm tailoring what I'm saying and tailoring the work that I'm doing based on a room of three hundred people at a time. So that's like if if I'm going to say there was any benefit to that shit kind of abuse it would be that I've now learned how to read a room. And I'm a much better consultant as a result of that.
0: Wow. Well, first of all, I'm sorry that you had to experience that and go through that. No, uh, no, No child should have to endure anything like that, you know. And the adults in your life, all of them, including the ones that were supposed to help you, abandoned you. And that had to have been hard. So my heart goes out to you as well as, uh, Jordan says the same thing. Um, and if you're, anybody's watching this and, you know, if you need to take a moment, um, to kind of gather yourselves, you know, cause that, that was difficult to, to listen to. That was tough, man. Um, I, you know, I'm, I've got tears in my eyes almost because of, I can't imagine that. Like when I but i think of my own daughter like i would never do anything like that you know like that never even crosses my mind
2: well that's testament to you and that's how that's how it should be
0: so i'm sorry that you had to go through that and you're really strong and um yeah thank you for sharing that because i know it wasn't easy cuz if it if it was this difficult for me to listen to it i imagine i can't imagine what it was like to go through it and then have to tell it so thank um, you
2: i'm kind of it's weird i'm kind of just accepting of it now like i'm um, um like so i uh yeah was homeless at 15 because i could be in that house anymore so and by homeless i mean the hidden homeless the people that are couch surfing and sleeping in like, friends cars and stuff and it was still safer and then but i was also um from the age of 13 because i had these old friends they, they all thought I was older. Well, like, one of them knew my real age, but the rest of them all thought I was 18. So I was going to nightclubs, and I was going, and this is where, like, my mother just didn't, um, like, seem to care. So, like, I was, she knew I was going to nightclubs when I was 13 old, and she would do my hair. And she would do my hair knowing, well, I was going to a nightclub of all these older people, and I wouldn't come home until six in the morning, and then I would just come home. I'd get one hour's sleep, and then I'd take a shower and then go to school. And I was doing that when I was 13 years old, and I was spending most nights. I was promiscuous at this point. So this is when it's like using sexuality to go home with guys and girls and I was like it was safer for me to go home with a stranger than it was for me to go home so I would just go home with a stranger I would sit them because I thought that's what I had to do and then and it's not like I enjoyed it I just it's something a performance it was performance for me and then i would stay awake all night so they would fall asleep everything would be fine they'd i and i couldn't sleep couldn't sleep next to um a person another person i was never felt safe enough um so i would get up and i would go and like clean their kitchen and like do random shit like that uh, because i just needed to entertain myself whilst they were staying and I was waiting for the first home and uh, I was using sex as a way of staying away from my own home Um, and like none of these people were ever bad to me they were all good to me and I felt bad because in fear they were committing like crimes because they were sleeping with me but they had no idea they thought I was like 18, 19, 20 Um, when I was like 13, 14, 15. Um, And I was convinced, I'd convinced them that I was at university studying political history because I knew a lot about history. And so I would convince them that's what I was doing and they believed me. Um, And like, yeah, I feel guilty for like, they unwittingly committed crimes, but them they were also saving me saving me from being home but my mother didn't even say a thing about the fact that I wouldn't come home at night it wasn't even an issue like she knew I was going out clubbing and then I'd come at six in the morning like having walked home from um a nightclub and I'd walked home like six seven miles um and like just yeah just rocked up at home and then got changed and went to school and so i just i'd get like an hour's sleep and that was like a regular occurrence for me and then i would just rest like on a sunday i would just kind of sleep on sundays um that's my anxiety levels are so high and i had undiagnosed adhd so my and undiagnosed bipolar so i was just manic or depressed and either way i was faking it so if i was manic i was literally manic and i was all over and like people adored me in the nightclubs because i would dance all night and it was and i was super fun and fun loving and they and i was like friendly to the point where a company hired me to be their like promo girl or like dev i think my stepdaughter called it the vibe girl so basically it was my job to kind of bring up the mood the mood And get people up dancing and stuff like that. So I was hired by a company to do that in the clubs. And um, one one guy who hired me um, was super awesome. And he would uh, take me from my hometown, um, which is Brighton, on the south coast of England. And then he'd be up to his nightclubs to work in London. Um, and so I'd go up London a couple of nights a week and then he'd drive me home afterwards. But on the drive home, knowing that I was like homeless or when I actually got an apartment at sixteen, he would drive me home and he would stop to get petrol, gas, whatever you call it. Um, he'd stop to get that in the middle of the night. Um and he would then take me to the grocery store, the 24-hour grocery store, and he would buy my grocery for the week. And, like, so he was really awesome. So he knew that things were dire for me. Um, he would, like, pay me to be the driver, And then, like, everyone else in the car was passed out because I got too drunk, whereas I couldn't sleep extra strangers. So I was always, like, awake with him and in the front of the car, keeping him awake whilst driving. So he would, like, take me in and buy me my week's groceries and stuff like that, which was just, like, there were some people that cared for me um, and did nice thingy. Um And and that was in, like, the thing world, which I shouldn't even have been allowed in until I was 18. Um, yet there I was working in nightclubs um, from the age of like, 14 years old. But it was safe for me. Uh, It was awesome. And I was like earning money and getting to just do what I love anyway. Uh, But then because I'm bipolar, I would also go into depression. But I would just fake the mania. So I just fake happiness because that's what people expected of me, to be the happy vibe girl. So, um, I would take sweets around the sweets to people in the nightclubs and stuff, or like in Halloween, I would dress up as a fairy and throw glitter on people and just generally make people feel good. And that made me feel good, like making them, giving them a good night. But, you know, actually deep down, I was just really depressed and I had no way of externalizing that depression to anyone, um, It was just, yeah, I just had, I've always had to hide my emotions. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I was diagnosed with bipolar and they medicated me. And I found out that I had emotions beyond mania and depression. Like I'd been faking it my whole life. I'd been faking happy, I'd been faking sad. Um, But for the first time, I actually felt happiness and sadness. A way that other people feel happiness, sadness, and I had no idea what I'd been missing out on for like 30 years of my life. I had no idea that there was something beyond mania and depression. And like, when I talk about like, um, when I was diagnosed with bipolar and they medicated me, they it gave me all the colors of the rainbow before it was red and white and that they were my extremes and that was all I knew. But then the lithium gave me all the colours of the rainbow and that was incredible. And then a few years later I got diagnosed with ADHD and I got put on dexamphetamine. And suddenly that changed everything again because I not only felt the colours of the rainbow but I could articulate them. So for the first it took me until I was about 35 years old 34 35 before i was actually um able to have the emotions that other people felt and be able to talk about them in a meaningful way which meant that therapy got easier because i could say i felt genuinely happy today and this is why i felt happy and this is what happiness felt like for me and i'd never i'd never had that before it was just it was just the extremities and I was just faking I was like, and I was using so much energy, faking being happy all the time at school, at theatre, at the clubs, like I was just faking it and um, because that's what people expected of me and I, I needed to hide what was, covered, what was happening at home so as far as everyone was concerned I was just this fun loving girl living a fun loving life and all of my high school friends were envious of me because i was going clubbing and because i had, like 21 year old guys coming to pick me up from school in their cars and stuff and like they, they were like the cool guys um um they were picking up from school to take me like to go get changed and like hang out and go clubbing and so my friends at school were all like oh wow your life amazing and stuff and they had, they had no idea what the hell I was going through at home and why I was living a potentially dangerous life with all these older guys um, but it was just they thought there I was this happy lucky person who was living the best life and they were all super jealous of me um, and, yeah, and that, there's nothing for them to be jealous of. Like, I, I didn't enjoy sex until I was 17. I didn't actually, like, I was doing it and putting on a great performance and had a reputation, but um, it wasn't until I had a relationship with someone I felt actually safe with him when I was 17, I thought to myself one day, whoa, is this what it's supposed to be like? And it occurred to me that the first time that I would enjoy it for myself, like sex was taken away from me at an early age, and I, I don't even know when it was taken from me. And then I was giving it away for sanctuary, And then it wasn't until I was new and safe with a friend that um, I felt something and I enjoyed something and I asked him for what I wanted for a change instead of me always giving up what they wanted and I was the one who was, like, the perfect, like one night stand because i was always like what do you want um, and i would give them exactly what they wanted and then i would leave in the morning before they woke up and stuff so i was the perfect nightstand for all these people i didn't want anything from them and yeah, it was just i never realized that i was allowed to enjoy sex until i was 17 by the way point I'd been having sex against my will for like over 10 years.
0: Yeah, man, that's, uh, well, I mean, you were, <clears throat> you were trying to survive for one and then also you were using that as a tool, um, to, you know, find shelter or safety, you know, whatever it is that you needed to do with it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's tough, man. Um, Like I said, man, my heart goes out to you. I I had no idea, you know, like, cause we, I, I talk to you and hear you almost every night in clubhouse, you Mm -hmm. know, when, when we go in there and, you know, we're just all having a good time and, you know, talking and connecting and, and joking around and, you know, and I think that that's part of the, the amazing part of clubhouse is that, you know, we, you can connect on a, on a, on a deeper level with people and, just getting to know the stories, you know, Tanner's, you know, doing his fireside chats, you know, I interview people as well um, and the real stories behind, you know, who the, who the personalities are. And, you know, I, I, I really do appreciate your transparency and, and your ability to be honest um, and, and tell your story, you know, even though how hard it is. And, you know, I do the same thing. And so I, I really respect you, and I respect you know what you're doing, and and being courageous enough to tell a story that could potentially save somebody's life, who could be listening to this.
2: Well, I respect you and your transparency. I think that what you're doing here with the podcast, also awesome, like giving a voice to people um, to share this stuff. But yeah, I guess like I did go through all of that, and I. Um, have come out at the other end. It's taken me a long, it's long road. Um, but I've come out at the other end with this ability to live a more successful life. Um, and like I did seek, like when I got older, I did seek help with therapy and I did seek help with medication, and that was. Um, probably like something that de- well it definitely saved me because I was um, suicidal when I was young um, I was also anorexic um, partly because of my mother so she had this perfection complex and like everything had to be seen as being perfect even though everything was awful and I was probably like um about eight years old when i was trying on a dress and i'm an hourglass figure so i've you know i've got a little waist but i've got wider hip um which i love now but i hated back then because it was it was was fashionable to be straight up and down and like androgynous but um yeah i my mother is straight up and down but uh, her mother was an hourglass. So I looked like her mother. I never met her. She passed before I was born. And I was just—I was in this clothes shop, and I was trying on this dress, and it was kind of meant for people who were straight up and down. And I said to my mother, "Like, did I inherit these hips from you?" And she said, "I was never that fat when I was your age." And <laughs> I was like, "Oh." I must be fat then. I wasn't fat. Looking back, I was fat. I was a dancer and I was in theatre. I was running around. I was anxious. So I was thin um, and I was vegetarian and everything. And so I just became anorexic and bulimic, um, like, overnight. So I. she would make food for me and everyone we all hated each other in the house so when dinner was made everyone went and sat in their own bedrooms. seat so there was no sitting around the table or anything like that and that meant that i was able to take my food and scrape food out of my window um and onto the um little roof that was underneath my window and scrape my food out there And then as soon as it started to smell really bad, I would get a kettle of hot water, uh, of boiling water, and I would pour the boiling water so that all the food would go into the gutter and then it would disappear because I just wouldn't eat. And when I was at school, I would hide not eating by taking multivitamins and telling my friends that I couldn't eat because um, I was a dancer so I was only allowed to eat two meals a day, and so I wasn't allowed to eat lunch, and um, that was just how I got away with not eating at school. And um, and if I did eat, um, I felt guilty, and I ended up like vomiting it up because my stomach couldn't take it, and also I felt like shame around eating, and I thought that if I made myself really unattractive, like really skinny that maybe he wouldn't touch me anymore and it didn't work it was just it actually just pronounced my body even the shape of my body even more and so like as i hit puberty um and i was like away and wearing baggy clothes all the time it just made it more prominent that you could see breasts because i was so skinny um and so that would just give him more incentive um to abuse me because he was like well you're a woman now and it's like he he, it gave him an excuse that before i was a child but now i'm a woman and my my body was was underweight and um it wasn't until i was like Com- more comfortable when i was like steam and like i was at these places and they would feed me um that i actually had meat on my bones again and, and i was actually an okay size i was unhappy with it like, i've got body dysmorphia still do now but and i was unhappy with it but um like i had friends telling me that i looked so much better when I wasn't gaunt and skinny and so I was like okay maybe if they think I look better that's good but you know it still makes it more of a danger at home and just yeah it was like a tightrope, rope just trying to navigate my weight and then in my 20s I wanted to be less active and I ended up becoming obese um, and I was like a size I think what you the US so I was like 24 um, and then I be- so I became a beast and I was married and I was unhappy and I was bored and stuff and and then it was when I met my new partner I changed my diet moved to Australia changed my diet um, to be really healthy and I ended up losing 135 pounds um, which is like over 60 kilos. Um, and I'm down to a really healthy weight now, and I still have body dysmorphia. I still like look at my body and I'm unhappy with it. But navigating that with like weighing myself properly and like measuring my um, self properly around my waist and things like that, and just um, trying to make sure that I'm healthy. My partner won't let me be unhealthy. Like I lost a bit too much weight. He was just like, no, you can't do that. And he's like being the best support that I could have possibly imagined.
0: Yeah. That's, that's awesome, man. That's amazing. Um, And you, you're beautiful, you know, you're a beautiful woman and you're a beautiful soul. And, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that, that we're friends and that we've made acquaintances and, you know, I, I struggle with weight too. And, you know, there's been times when I would, um, you know, when back when I was an abusive person, you know, I would be, I would lash out at my ex for her weight. But it was really when I really started looking at it and, and dissecting it. It was really me not liking who I was, projecting it onto her because of how i felt about myself so you know it's uh the, the mind is crazy and the, the way we do the things that we do and how things get manipulated in our head and twisted around um because of things that we've been through or 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 just thoughts that get put in there um you know from wherever <laughs> absolutely
2: um, jordan opinion... has
0: a question oh
2: yeah oh, go ahead no no it's good
0: Jordan has a question. He says, uh, you don't have to answer this, and I don't know the right answer, but I am wondering, have you forgiven him, your father? I'm, I'm assuming that's who he's talking about. Was that part of the healing process?
2: So that's actually a really beautiful question, Jordan. So thank you for asking me. Um, so um, I have not forgiven him, but I have come to a period of acceptance of what happened to me and i know it was not my fault and i um I, I actually so um i ran away when i was 17 i moved 250 miles away from my hometown um i disappeared and i didn't know them where i was going um and i uh wanted to stay hidden so um I did. I disappeared and I spent 30 years living in a different city. Um, and then I moved to Australia. Um, and I kind—I went on this self-concourse thing. And um, I came to accept my mother for who she was. So I hadn't been to her for five years because she was, um, she never showed love or affection. Um, and she was really distant when it came to me discussing my digitalities and um, mental health and everything else and I couldn't deal with her for and I actually just stopped talking to her for five years and I went on this self-help course and I contacted her and I just said I, I accept you if you are like, she's never said I love you she doesn't hug me she's uh, been affectionate and, she's, and I was desperate for a mum that she's always been a mother like never been a mum or mummy, she's mother, but I've come to accept her, who she was, and I contacted her, and now she's in my life, and we FaceTime regularly, and um, I've just accepted who she is as a person. Now, with my father, um, I actually uh, did seek him out after, like, 16, 17 years. Um, I finally found him, took me about a year, but I finally found him, and i spoke to him and um like i called him up i got his phone number from my step brother um and i got his phone number and i called him and i just said it was me and he his instinct was to lay into me for 10 minutes um and i just listened to him um my partner sat next to me and he was like crying um and he just laid into me for 10 minutes about what a horrible person I was um and uh, because i was gonna i'd threatened to take him to court i was 18 but i never did it i never got the nerve so he must have thought it was going to be about that and then i just said to him i think you'll agree we all went through hell so then he went okay and started talking about for 10 minutes about how incredible his new life was um his wife and her kids and this that and the other and how one of them's a millionaire and this that and the other and i just went okay i'm really happy for you i'm glad you have that in your life and then he was like again taken aback when he realized that i wasn't there to berate him and then he said then spent the next 10 minutes in tears talking about how amazing i was and like you know not having me in his life and everything else and he was in tears and stuff and I said I would like to try having a relationship with you because I hadn't forgiven him but I had accepted and I just decided that I can't be held hostage by him anymore so um, I started speaking to him on the phone and he's old, he's in his 70s um, speaking to him on the phone And then I went back to the UK to visit people, and I organized to visit him. And I walked up to him, and I gave him a hug. And he was, like, taken aback. And so was was my stepmother, and, you know, like they were all taken aback. And my partner was, like, shocked because I just walked straight in to his, like, house and gave him a hug and sat down next to him and started talking about the nice parts of my childhood, you know, music and stuff. Started talking about the nice parts of my childhood. And I decided there and then that I was drawing a line and I was starting anew, because if he's a new person, then we can start a new relationship and I can have a father. So I tried that. And we so we met up a couple of times and we spoke on the phone when I came back to Australia. And then he was... Um, still being a narcissistic twat over dinner with my partner but my partner just like held my hand under the table like he knew he knew that he was just trying to pop show so um and i let it slide but then i came back to australia it was after about seven months of having him in my life he um called me and his wife was away and his wife used to be in the colombian military so that she kept in in line but she was away visiting family so um uh he was on his own and he called me and he i was at work at the time because time differences and uh he called me and I, I was like oh gosh like i wonder what he's calling me for i want hope it's not an emergency and i answered the phone and immediately i knew he'd been drinking whiskey because when he drinks beer, he's friendly. And when he drinks whiskey, he is not. And I know that from my childhood. So he called and started to berate me, calling me a greedy, selfish bitch. And I said, well, What have I possibly done to deserve this? And he said, You came over to, and you saw me, and you couldn't even throw your old man a couple of grand. And I was like, pardon? And he was like, you've heard me. You come over and you've got this great life um, and you couldn't even throw your old man a couple of grand, you greedy little selfish bitch. And I said, well, I thought you had money and why would I give you Why would I give you money? Even if I had the money, why would I give you money? And he's just like, you always were greedy and selfish and everything else and you just went... Um, he kept, carried on. I, I wouldn't let it slide. I said, "No, no. Why do you think you deserve my money? Back all this time, etc." And I held him on the phone. And I was late for a board meeting, but I held him on the phone until he um, showed his true cousin seriously. And he just went, "Fuck you, you fucking bitch. Get out, of fucking life. I don't want you. I don't want you. I don't need you. I don't need your fucking money. Um, stay away from me, etc." And I was like. Well, if that's the way you feel, I accept. And so I just accepted that he wanted to cut me out of his life. And then he tried to, I went into the board meeting um, and I could see him trying to call me like another five or six times. And I had to take my phone to the table and I texted my stepmother um, and I said, he's been drinking whiskey. This is what he's just done. It's what he's just said to me. And I texted my stepbrother Um, who lived nearby and I said to him what had happened and he said he was so apologetic it was unreal I was like you don't need to apologize this is just who he is with me Um, and I never told them what he did to me Mm -hmm. I always because i drew that line i never thought it was not my story to tell like it wasn't fair to tell them that the person they've been living with is that kind of person so um i texted my stepbrother and he said um he was going to go and delete my number his phone so he can't call me anymore and i said that would be great thank you so now i am complete i am whole and complete because I I stepped up and I gave him every opportunity to be in my life and he is the one that threw it away and it was on his terms. He self-selected himself out of my life. So although I can't forgive him for what he's done, I've accepted what he's done and I am I'm complete in myself with what happened to me. And it, apart from the uncontrollable PTSD, like i feel like i can share my story openly now and i don't feel shame or guilt and i can like do podcasts like this and be open about it and i don't cry i don't feel anything about it anymore i'm just complete with it so um that if i hope that was a good answer to your question jordan
0: yeah, that was an amazing answer. And I'm the one that cries. It seems like I'm crying way more lately than, than anything else. But, uh, you know, I'm just honestly, it's, uh, it's just having a daughter and, and knowing like what they need in their life and the kind of love that they need and support. And, and, you know, being like, do I hug my kids so much? Like it's like, anytime I, it's like, it's almost like I'm overcompensating because you know a little bit about my story and that my, you know, I have a daughter that I lost when I was, when I was younger. I mean, she's in my life now, but I mean, I had had abandoned her at one point. And so it's like, I was almost trying to overcompensate with, with this daughter because of the mistakes I'd made with the last one. And so it's like, God, I feel bad for you, Red. You know, your old man's trying to compensate and over love you because of, you know, The situation in the past. So, you know.
2: um. I do that. I have stepdaughters, um, and they were 12 and 15 when I met them. And I was over, I'm like really in their life, and they're in their 20s now. And one of them has given me a grantor, which is nuts. Um, And I am completely affectionate and loving, but I'm authentic with it. So I'm not overcompensating for anything. I have just authentic, unconditional love for these young women. And I respect them and their life decisions. And I support them. And they come to me for advice. And I love the fact that I have that and that relationship with them um, because, you know, being a settler is um, a really difficult position to be in of of teenage girls. You know, like, are you trying to take over from my mom? Are you taking my dad away? And all that kind of stuff could have happened. But we have just these we although we had our ups and downs when they were teenagers and we're all living together and like I wanted them to tidy rooms and stuff like that um it was just we've now I'm now in a position where I have the most incredible relationship with these two young women that even my partner and I we've been together eight years but even if my partner and I weren't together anymore I would still have this relationship with his children and granddaughter like that would just that's just a, a given because I've built my own relationship with them, and I can't imagine being anything like my parents were. Like I tell them that I love them, and we hug, and they tell them me that they love me, and I can't imagine ever abusing, assaulting, or hurting them in any way. Um, but like something that is sad is young that. Um, mental health runs in my family and other health problems run in my family and knowing the the fact that my mother went through the cycle of she was abused by her father and then she ended up marrying somebody that abused his daughter and stuff you know like I I decided at an early age that I was never going to have children because I never wanted to continue that cycle so I drew a line and said I'm never having children and I just decided then and i've carried that through and i don't have children but i don't need to now like i've got step kids which is great and um i don't have a desire or a need to have kids um which is awesome um but like it was just it's just really sad that at an early age i thought i can't do what i can't i can't possibly continue the cycle just in case and i can't pass on these genetics um, just in case. So I decided when I was about 11 that I was never going to have kids and I carried on my whole life and then I um, became what I call a foster girlfriend. So um, I would go out with boys until they found their forever home. <laughs> so um, uh, pretty much every all of the boyfriends I've had since I was 17 or even my ex-husband counts has the next person they've been with has been their wife or mother of, their, you know, mother of their child. Um, and so like I fostered them and made them good people. And then I've passed them over to somebody else to do the living with um, and to do the, yeah, the kid, the marriage and everything. So yeah, I'm a foster girlfriend. Uh, but I'm, Yeah. <laughs>
0: That's an interesting way of putting it. Um, I, I didn't mean to laugh at that. I just I, it got a, a chuckle because I'm like, huh, that's a...
2: <laughs> no, it's funny. It's supposed to be funny. Don't worry about it. It's supposed uh, to be... Like, I'm supposed to be a funny person. Don't worry about it. Like, um Yeah. <laughs> So it is funny. I'm hoping it's not the case with my partner now because, like, he is 19 years older than me. I, we've got stepkids, you know, I've got stepkids with him and everything. We have, the, I have the healthiest relationship I've ever had in my life, like, the most authentic. He will call me out on my bullshit in a way that other people haven't. And um, he's helped me through my mental health struggles and he's helped me suicidal sports and ideations and stuff and he's helped me through a huge amount to the point where we're now in the most stable that we've ever been and the eight years it's just been incredible so i'm very lucky that i've settled down with somebody and who is also um wants to live life to the fullest so we want to live all over the world we want to do all these crazy things and we're we're doing it we're both entrepreneurs and we both and we like live in a great apartment because we don't want to own anything so we only rent now because we if like if you own the house you settle down and we don't want to do that so we've committed ourselves renting for the rest of our lives so we can rent in different parts of the country or the world and live like the only commitment I've truly got is I've got two guinea pigs Um, (laughs) so they have to come with me but uh, yeah it's just I've got this like incredible like relationship now and at a really great place with my mental health and like it's been well managed and I'm comfortable sharing my story and it can help one person as you say if one person hears this and is impacted and knows that there is a light at the end of the tunnel or they can achieve and they can look at the benefits of what they endured because i can i can endure anything now because i've already been through hell so i can go i can just endure um literally anything so that's a superpower that i have is endurance. Uh, I have a superpower of reading a room and I have these great just superpowers which have come from the life I have lived. Um, And that's, and and that if it just takes reframing things and getting the right help and then anything's possible.
0: Yeah. I'm going to pull this uh, national sexual abuse hotline number because it's one thing that I, I always... I, I talk about a lot of these things, but sometimes I don't give calls to action and I need to get better about that. But it wasn't... I didn't... I knew the, I knew what your story was going to be about, but I didn't know it was going to be like that. So not that it was bad. It's just... That was a lot.
2: Impactful,
0: maybe. Yes, yes, yes. Very impactful.
2: Absolutely. You do share it. So um, I think that's really important um, because like getting... Getting help um, uh, is and talking to somebody uh, is really important. Um,
0: Yes. The number on the screen right there is for the National Sexual Abuse Hotline. And, you know, I'm sure you could probably, if you're in another country watching this or if you're somewhere else, I'm sure you can um, maybe. Call that and they can give you resources. Um, you know, can I
2: out the Australian one just because I'm in Australia, so people will see this. Yep, is
0: 1800
2: 737 732. So
0: 1800
2: 737 732. So that's the 1800 respect number. Um, in Australia, so I think that's um, yeah, really a valuable resource as well because I'm in mean, Australia. One more, one more time. One eight
0: hundred seven three seven seven three two. So seven three two. Oh, your numbers are different in Australia, huh? Let's yeah. A u s t i n.
2: We have fewer people, so we have shorter numbers.
0: A-B-E-U-S-E. Yeah. So, I think yeah. it's a good point to wrap it up on. We are at uh, an hour and eleven right now. So, once you go ahead, oh, while I am sure. doing this, and um, and you know, tell everybody where they can find you. Uh, I know you did in the beginning, but if you know any last things yeah. that you want to direct people to, feel free to do it.
2: Well, there is one thing that I'd like to share, which is. Um, I've got a new website which isn't up yet, but I have the domain, um, and that's going to be gingergeorgiana um, and that is uh, going to be where I host a podcast where I interview inspiring people um, about stories, um, and I like to think of it as like Oprah with drinking wine and a bit. Like that's kind of like my my jam. So I'll be interviewing gold medal winning Paralympians. I have an ex stripper who's now in the industry. Uh, I've got women's rights activists for abortion campaigning, um, and then drag queens and all sorts. So there'll be it will be interesting. There'll be the Ginger Georgiana podcast, um, and it's on all my socials. So if you follow me on Clubhouse or if you follow me on Twitter um Instagram Pinterest and it's all ginger Georgiana and so um yeah that would be awesome if people followed me on there and then when I know we're live streaming but by um in the next couple of weeks the website will be up and it will have not only the cast but it'll also have details of the stories I can tell for um people um at mental health um like conferences and uh, people at um, uh, sexual abuse conferences and things like that. Like, I'll be able to share my story. So, Georgiana.com will have my story on there, but it will also have a link to the podcast. So, yeah.
0: That's awesome. It. And you can also find Georgiana if you're on Clubhouse because Jordan is uh, at Ginger Georgiana. And if you're not on Clubhouse, you need to get on there because it's, it's definitely uh, the place to be right now. And there's a lot of good stuff going on there, a lot of good con- uh, connections and, and organic uh, growth for whatever it is that you're doing. That's in, in your- oh,
2: how we met as well. So we met yeah. through Clubhouse, and that's why I was able to share my story with you today. So thank you.
0: You're welcome and then Jordan also had a final comment for you. And Jordan was on my show as well. He's an author of a book called One Hit Away and he he struggled with a heroin addiction and got himself out of that, you know, through treatment and everything else and now he's thriving and successful and, you know, Uh, moving on with his life. So thanks Jordan for being a a viewer um, and and supporter of the show. I definitely appreciate that. And so he says, thank you for sharing. This was a powerful podcast and you are incredibly strong. And he is correct. You are very strong.
2: (sighs) That's very kind. I just felt like I was very unlucky and I've come out the other end. So that's good. But I suppose, yeah, there is strength in in being able to share the story, but and also strength in coming out the other side and living a successful life despite everything that was thrown my way.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Georgiana. I definitely want to thank you, and I appreciate your honesty and your transparency. And if you are struggling with something like this, or this this hits you in a way that that you know maybe you think that you need to call this number this is the uh united states national sexual abuse hotline and this one down here is the one for australia so um you know get help there is help uh contact somebody don't ever feel like you can't come forward and and get and and get some sort of reprieve or or help for this i mean i've never been in this situation but i also know that you know the tactics that are used sometimes are you just have to see past that and, and take take that risk and come forward and let people help it's you. Because
2: never too late. It's never too late to come forward. I think that's really important to note, like even if you've suppressed memories or anything, it's never too late to talk to see. I learned that.
0: Yeah, and when you talk about it, and you start to to um, you know bring that out there and talk to professionals, or like in, in mine and Georgiana's case, you know, with, with my abusive past, um, and I talk about it, and she's talking about it, we you take the power away from it that it has over you and your life, and being able to move forward and thriving, and and you know, becoming a successful or or not even successful, just becoming the person that you were supposed to be.
2: Absolutely. I think I'm, I'm incredibly proud of who I've become. So I think um, that's a, if, if that gives anyone any inspiration to uh, organise themselves in coming forward about something or at least coming and can help um, in any way, whenever that occurs to them, um, just know that you can end up being really happy with the person that you are. Um, And really happy with the life that you're living. So that's me. That's where I am.
0: Well, thank you. And I'm going to go ahead and put you down into the uh, green room again. And I'm going to take us out of here. And once again, I appreciate everything that you do and everything that you shared. You are a beautiful person and very strong and an inspiration to me as well. So I appreciate you.
2: Thank you. Bye. Bye.
1: You've been listening to the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. Sean is a single dad, a union blue collar guy, and he spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. When he was released from prison in 2006, all he had was the clothes on his back, a bag of mail and some paperwork. Since then, he's turned his life around and shares the struggles and successes on this podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show and we hope you were moved to connect to the show. Book a guest spot for merch, Patreon, PayPal, and social media links. Go to linktr.ee/slash nowhere to go but up. On Instagram at nowhere to go but up now. On Twitter at but up now. On the YouTube channel at nowhere to go but up podcast. See you next time.